Cass Morris is a historical fantasy author and Shakespeare enthusiast. She's always loved storytelling. At the age of four, she created an expansive sequel to The Last Unicorn and made her friends play out all the parts. By the age of 12, she was reading Shakespeare and traveling with her family to see theater productions. Her love of Shakespeare persisted into adulthood. She wrote her master's thesis on relationship dynamics in Shakespeare and ancient Rome. She also emerged with a mastery of using rhetorical devices to create unique character voices. It's that love of character and voice that's carried over into her own work on the Avon Cycle, a Roman-flavored historical fantasy released by Daw Books. To learn more, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. In exchange for your support on Patreon, you'll receive monthly one-on-one sessions with yours truly. I'm a certified master life coach, and I've worked with best-selling authors, award-winning filmmakers, and everything in between. Help fund the show today and get the support you need to take the next step forward on your own unique journey as a storyteller. Again, visit patreon.com forward slash Ethan Frackleton. All right. Enough with that. On to today's show. Cass Morris, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Hey there. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, So you were referred to me by Marshall Mariska, former guest, and I think a a co-host on a podcast. Is that right? Absolutely. Marshall and I are two of the three hosts of World Building for Masochists, along mm. with our friend Rowena Miller. Mm. And that's that's uh, something I joined them about a year ago. They started off with Alex Rowland was the first um, mm. in their first set of hosts. But I've known Marshall for, for a while. We've moved in the same circles. We both publish at DAW. So we've, we've mm. been friends for a bit now. He's a wonderful person. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to talk to. And so what else do we need to know about you? I am the author of From Unseen Fire and Give Way to Night, which are the first two books in a three-book series from Daw. It's the Oven Cycle. It's historical fantasy. I gave the ancient Romans magic to see what they would do with it. And it was wonderful and terrible things, as one might expect. <laughs> That's who I am writing-wise in the rest of my life. I am an educator. I currently teach Um, college English. I have taught Shakespeare for a lot of years through the American Shakespeare Center Mm. in Stanton, Virginia. And I've also worked a lot of retail. I've worked in a bookshop, slinging books for for anybody who wants them. Mm -hmm. So how does, I mean, being a college professor of English makes a lot of sense. So how does does Shakespeare fit into this whole story for you? I mean, we've got world building for masochists, right? And (laughs) 
and terrible, wonderful stuff that Romans with magic are doing. And, and then Shakespeare. <laughs> What's your relationship to Shakespeare and why is that um, important to you? Intimate, very intimate relationship. Um, I've, I've loved Shakespeare since I was very young. Um, I think I was 12 when my family started a summer Shakespeare tour here in Virginia, mm. started off seeing shows in Richmond at an outdoor theater and then sort of expanded and went to as many as we could find because I just, I took to it mm. very quickly. I loved it. Shakespeare uses language in absolutely incredible ways. Um, it's almost, you know, it's cliche to say that almost, mm. but the more I studied him, the more impressed I was, not less. It didn't become like, oh, he's not actually that great. He has no blown reputation. It's like, no, he actually deserves every bit of his reputation. And part of what makes him so wonderful is an ability to create character voices mm. through his words and through the use of, of rhetoric. I'm a very large rhetoric geek. I love, I love rhetorical devices. And give each character a unique voice and, and communicate what's going on in their heads and what sort of person they are, what sort of energy they have through the words he puts in their mouths. And that's everyone from his big famous characters down mm -hmm. to people that walk on stage, deliver three lines as a messenger and then leave still have these character choices in them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all wrapped up in my lifelong love of storytelling and, and how it all fits together and how we create worlds, how we create characters that hopefully people will fall in love with. Yeah. And did you, did you discover Shakespeare on your own? Was that something that you acquired as a taste from your parents? It was, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I had picked up Romeo and Juliet completely on a whim. I think while we were at the beach on vacation mm. and, you know, just going around to the shops there and they had a, a table of, you know, summer reading. And mm. I was like, this looks interesting. And soon thereafter was declaiming it from the back deck of the beach house. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's when, sort of after that, my parents started taking me to sea shows, and um, we started going to the Renaissance Fair, because oh, yeah. that yeah. seemed like a good outlet. I ended up working for the Virginia Renaissance Fair for a few years when I was older, hmm. and then just kept taking classes, got involved in plays in high school and college. Hmm. I actually directed Romeo and Juliet during college, oh, Yeah, and then went to a master's program for Shakespeare, and worked for a Shakespeare theater for seven years. Wow. <laughs> So that's that's like aligned and, and <laughs> on a on a path, a straight and narrow path. And what do you what do you do in a master's program central to uh, Shakespeare? Uh, read a lot of plays. Mm -hmm. uh, my focus was dramaturgy and pedagogy, which meant I was looking at historical research around plays, which might mean anything from the play's original context to when it's set, which is not always the same thing, hmm. to the history of how it's been produced, how it's been approached throughout hmm. time. You know, how hmm. have people done Julius Caesar in different contexts? Hmm. So that's sort of the dramaturgy, the historical half. I love history. That's going to hmm. become very apparent if it hasn't already. Mm -hmm. And then pedagogy, teaching. I, I wanted yeah. to teach, and that's what I did at the American Shakespeare Center. I was in the education department working largely on better ways to get Shakespeare into classrooms. Mm. I think there are a lot of teachers who don't do well by Shakespeare because they themselves were not taught it very well. Mm -hmm. 
and they think of it as literature rather than a play. And that means they are missing what is actually exciting about it. The ability to make choices about a script is what makes it interesting. And so we try to give teachers those tools to work with with their kids to say, here's how you can think like an actor. Look at this page, make it make sense, and then make some choices about how you want to present this character in this scene. Yeah, that sounds really practical. I, I'm, I'm not sure I was exposed to Shakespeare in any sort of way that was that practical or maybe not enough people are. Yeah. 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 I've certainly seen enough movies and plays and some that were well done, but probably didn't think too heavily about other than how did they memorize all those lines (laughs) and have it mean something to them? That's, you know, the length, having language be accessible, you know, seems like a, a modern challenge that we, that we, deal with when we're writing right yeah absolutely and and where is that line between changing something out of the the original voice and the Mm. the world it would have inhabited to make it accessible to a modern reader um at the asc we would get people telling us after shows they'd say oh i'm so glad you changed the language i understood everything and we'd say Mm. we didn't change it at all you mm. understood it because our actors understood it. Yeah. And I think that works in writing, too. If you provide enough context mm. around an unfamiliar term, you can bring the reader along. Right. Your, your character could probably speak almost a foreign language, and you'd still understand if it, you understood their inter, interior life. And mm. those things. Yeah. That makes sense. <clears throat> so tell me about rhetorical devices. You said, <laughs> I love to use rhetorical devices. So I first love... of all, like, how do you define that? And then how, you know, practically speaking, how are you using that? Rhetoric is, I think, a scary term these days. It has been devalued. It's been taken out of education. And we usually hear it in a political context. Mm-hmm. We hear about negative rhetoric and violent rhetoric and all of that. Yeah which is a shame because what rhetoric is, is structuring your words to achieve a desired effect. Mm. That might be persuasive, but for a writer, it might be building a mood, building Mm -hmm. the tone in, in a scene, giving it that color or giving a character their voice. What are their speaking patterns like? Mm. So, as I said, I'm a huge, huge dork about this. I have spent time with the, the many Greek terms that are given to certain figures of speech and, and mm. certain devices. And I love them. Mm. Understanding rhetoric does not mean you have to understand all the crazy Greek terms. It's about mm-hmm. looking for patterns in language. Where are their repetitions? Who, what kind of a character repeats themselves a lot and for what purpose? Mm. What kind of a character is very sparse with their language and, and doesn't give more information than they absolutely have to? And what does that tell you about them? As opposed to a character who is always going on and adding on thoughts and tagging on to their own thoughts. Those patterns are what rhetoric is. They are the choices we make when speaking or sort of Mm. subconscious things that slip into our speech Mm. when we're not carefully moderating it. Mm. In which case, maybe that's connecting us with our roots or environment, right? Mm. Yeah, so I imagine that becomes handy like, if you're writing a story and you realize or you get feedback that your characters kind of all sound the same or you can't really tell the difference between your characters and dialogue, right? When it's really hit me is when I've needed to change a scene. Hmm. Um, I 
I think character voice is one of my natural strong points as a writer. And so my characters tend to come in sort of with a strong voice and a strong speaking pattern. Mm. But if I need to move a scene around and suddenly my main character is having this conversation, not with her older sister, but with her younger sister, Mm. I can't just change the speech tags. I can't just change, you know, search and replace one character's name with another. I have to change the dialogue itself because they have different patterns in how they speak and they speak in different lengths. One character is much more likely to to speak for a long amount of time and use lots of interjections and the other is not. That's when I really become aware of those patterns in speech in my own writing. Mm. And I can see where we're like talking about family kind of brought it home for me, like that you might talk differently to your little sister than you would your parents or a boss. Right. Is that something you think about too, when you're delving into this land? It is. Who, who are you engaging with and what sort of voice do you use with them? Is it your comfortable voice? Are you more comfortable speaking to them? Or are you the kind of person who always says what they're thinking, who has Mm -hmm. no verbal filter, even when you're in different circumstances? Mm -hmm. That can be a lot of fun. I have, I have a couple of characters who are like that and they're the most fun characters to write because they'll say anything. Um, But also it's something I think about when I teach writing as well, because Mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, this is, it's a composition class. It's not fancy. It's the basic level Mm -hmm. English class. But it's so important because we think about genre and we think about medium and who your audience is and what kind of language do you need to use for that audience as opposed to a different audience. How is the email you send your mom to check up on things different than the cover letter you send when you're applying for a job? Right. And helping students find, like, realize, like, oh, right, I should make my sentences a little more formal in one situation than another Sure, is part of my job as a teacher. Sure. And you're, and in both cases, you're asking for money, but <laughs> <laughs> different emotional connection, right? <laughs> and that's where the persuasion comes in. That's where our rhetorical right. appeals come in. <laughs> right. Mom's going to deny you for different reasons. Mom, I'm exactly. highly qualified to ask you for this. Use the use the emotional appeal with mom and the logical appeal in the cover letter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've spent a lot of time immersed in in rhetoric then in Shakespeare and probably other in other works. Like is there anything about it like that's still fresh and exciting for you? Like in oh, 2021? Yes. yes. Um Shakespeare in particular. You can never stop finding new things in his work. I have read Romeo and Juliet many times. I said I directed it. Um, I've seen many, many productions. Mm. I am currently doing a project on my Patreon that is a rhetorical analysis of the entire play, scene by scene. Mm. I'm about to start Act 3, Scene 5. I've been at it for a little over a year now, I think. I can't remember exactly when I shifted gears. I did um, a a song-by-song analysis of Hamilton before that. And then switched mm. over to, to Shakespeare. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I see new things. Every time I look at it, I see something different, either that I hadn't seen before or mm. a new way that an actor could interpret something. Um, and that's what makes it so much fun. That's why I think Shakespeare has hung on for 400 years, is that we do keep finding new things. Yeah. My, my mentor at Mary Baldwin University and the American Shakespeare Center, Ralph Cohen, has been teaching it for over four decades now. 
And he still, he says, you know, every time he revisits a text, there's something new. Mm. And I, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> it is. That's exciting. And I wonder how much of that is that you're, you know, you're just going back and you're seeing something new and how much of it is you've been steeped in all these other things and you're, you know, getting older and more experienced and you're, yeah. you're just becoming <laughs> more aware, right? As well. Our the adults in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Hit different when you're in your 30s as opposed to when you're 14. Yes. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, poor Friar Lawrence just trying to make sense of things. Mm. But I think it also matters where you do come from. And that's something else exciting about, about Shakespeare, but about art in general. Um, and it's something that's very big in the fantasy genre right now, too, is bringing in new voices. Mm. Seeing what people from different cultural backgrounds mm -hmm. make of these stories, how they might reinterpret them and how they're creating new stories within the fantasy genre. Um, it's mm -hmm. something, things that you can keep playing with, mm -hmm. whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's the world of fantasy fiction. It is most exciting when more voices, different voices, new voices, marginalized voices mm -hmm. are able to take the reins. Yeah. And, I guess, you know, the practical question there is, like, I I know I, like, from a reader perspective, like, it just feels like I'm reading the same story over and over again if I stay, <laughs> like, too, homo you know, homogenized in my reading. And it's mm -hmm. always so refreshing. And I imagine that it's that, that voice and, and the, the background of, the author is so important to that. And, but from a, how do I keep getting better as a writer question then is how do I evolve my voice, right? To stay fresh yeah. and interesting and accommodating to allowing more and more people to see themselves in my work. Mm -hmm. mm. It's something I think about a lot and it's why I like writing large casts um every story i've ever tried to write including the oven cycle that's published but everything else i've ever tried to write tends to have a large cast of characters mm -hmm. and multiple points of view usually mm -hmm. and i think that's part of because i like getting inside different people's heads and i like giving readers more ins mm -hmm. to the story experience you know maybe you don't vibe with my main character latona who mm -hmm. is I adore her. She's the one most like me in the entire book. <laughs> but I've had quite a few good friends of mine say that Vibia, who is Latona's polar opposite in personality, mm. introverted where Latona is extroverted and more reserved where Latona is emotionally expressive, um, was was their sort of their point of view character. Mm. And I like giving multiple opportunities for that. So different readers can can have a slightly different experience based on whose eyes they most enjoy seeing the story through. Yeah. And, you know, I know some readers like having that and some get overwhelmed with all the... Some do. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess you have to make, My, peace with, make peace with that if you're writing that way. It's absolutely true. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that is a matter of personal preference. I yeah. tend to get... I have a harder time mm. getting really invested in a single point of view book. Mm -hmm. 
some of which are amazingly written. It's it's never any, you know, commentary on the author or their talent. Mm. It's just that I also, I enjoy all those different angles. And so I like a story that has lots of different point of view characters. Yeah. I think it's just people's brains work different. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, having, I've, you know, having written books with a cast and with single point of view, I, I know it's, it's easier sometimes to go back and set things up and solve story problems, having different voices to lean on. <laughs> right. Oh, it's so, I, I, I don't know how, I mean, I, I've tried writing single point of view. I actually have one in the works that may end up being a single point of view and it'll be very strange for me, mm. but so often it's like, Oh, how do I do this? How do I get this information across? Wait a minute. I can use this other character to do that. Mm. Fantastic. That's mm -hmm. so much simpler than the convoluted process I might've had to plan. Yeah. Um, whereas with single point of view stories, I sometimes feel like I get cheated by what's happening off screen, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, wait, but I wanted to see that. I don't just want to hear about this exciting thing that happened. Yeah. Like, show me, you took that away from me. Yeah. Although there's a balance, right? Sometimes you can be shown too much and it takes the tension yeah. out of it too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you fell in love with Shakespeare around the age of 12. Were you already an avid reader by that point? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I was the child that had to be frisked for books before events because <laughs> I was just always the girl with a book in her hand. And mm -hmm. um, my parents nurtured that in me mm -hmm. very, very early. I genuinely have no memory of learning to read because mm. it happened before I was really forming memories. Mm. <laughs> I was very small. Um, always, always a huge reader. Mm. Reading reading books above my my grade very early on mm -hmm. i this is going to be this is a total humble brag um <laughs> <laughs> i scared the assessors when i was in the first grade they were doing this new thing this was mm -hmm. early sort of been 91 i guess mm -hmm. um they were doing this new thing computer testing for reading levels and and mm -hmm. so each of us like every student went in and had like a single session and there was something you did on the computer and mm -hmm. i'm not exactly sure what they were trying to figure out but it had to do with assessing your reading level and at the age of six i broke the scale <laughs> they were only prepared to measure up to grade five and uh -huh. i was beyond that at that point already yeah. and I, I just sort of remember i'm just sitting there and they're looking at each other like is this thing working did our <laughs> did our computer break what's going on it's like no, I just started reading chapter books really, really early. And mm. that was who I was. That was, and it's still who I am. I'm still mm. the person who is generally always reading three books at the same time. And <laughs> when did you start creating your own stories? I've been a storyteller once again, since I was very, very small. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I really remember putting together was a expansive sequel to The Last Unicorn. <laughs> which was my favorite movie when I was, I don't know, four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And I had this whole thing plotted out and I made my cousins act it out with me at the beach. Um, I don't know much about it, but we had to, you know, the unicorns were in trouble again and we had to save them again. It's uh -huh. very derivative, but you know, I was sure. small. It's like okay. fan fiction. <laughs> it really was. I didn't know what that was yet, yeah. but it was completely what I was doing. I was 11 when I knew I wanted to tell stories professionally mm. um and to that i credit star wars mm. 
I had never seen the movies until they were re-released in theaters there in um, 1997. Yeah. And I went to see the first one and sat there at the end watching the credits just absolutely gobsmacked. Mm. And <laughs> what had caught me was how big that world was. Mm. How many stories I could see Mm-hmm. at the margins of it you know you get the skywalker saga mm-hmm. but every location was filled with characters who clearly had their own stories and you know the the expanded universe over the decades has filled in a lot of those yes um i wanted to do that i saw that movie and went i want to make that kind of story i want to make that big world that other people can imagine themselves playing in mm-hmm. and that was that was when I I decided it's like I need to make stories in some way. Yeah, every time you mention it, you know, with like the sequel to the Last Unicorn and having your friends play it out and and wanting to do that and have these roles for people to play out, I I see the link to the to the stage play or yeah film. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, was that kind of your first preference or first first thought about it? I don't know. I had sort. Of toyed with the idea of of film directing when mm-hmm. I was younger, and didn't pursue it for for I think a lot of different reasons. I think the biggest one was that I would have had to move to California. Mm-hmm. Really, the avenue into that industry, mm-hmm. at least at the time, that's mm-hmm. sort of starting to change with digital media and 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 things like that. But at the mm-hmm. time, it was like, well, you have to go to USC. I was like, I don't know that I want to do that. I I love Virginia. I love where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't want to have to make that kind of transplant. Yeah. Um, that was part of it. It wasn't the only reason, but it was part of it. I also thought about acting for a while, and I, I do act mm-hmm. somewhat. I've done some Shakespeare. I've worked in interactive theaters, which I love. I actually really, really prefer. Like I, I mentioned the Ren Faire. Mm-hmm. I worked for a murder mystery dinner company. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interactive theater, I find more exciting than stage acting. Yeah. Um, but when I was about 15, my mm-hmm. mother sat me down. She claims now to have no memory of this conversation. But she sat me down and she was like, honey, you're a good actress. You're never going to be a great actress. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to deter me from following that path any further. And mm-hmm. I was heartbroken and oh. so mad at her at the time. But as I got older, I realized... She was absolutely right. And her Mm. point was, I didn't love that enough Mm. to take the hits you got to take to make a career out of it. I did love writing enough. And she thought I had more talent there and was stubborn enough about it to take the very similar kinds of hits that you take acting. You know, putting your soul out there and saying, please like this someone. (laughs) But I was, I had more talent I cared about it more. I loved mm-hmm. it more to dedicate myself to that path yeah. and, and roll with the punches when they came. And she, she could tell, she knew that about me. Yeah. So why? And what, what, I'm why, glad what, she why did. Was, why was writing so much like you were more willing to stick with it and, and roll with it? What was it about that form? I think it was partly having control over the product. Mm. Um, you know, authors don't have sole control necessarily. You work with editors and, and you mm-hmm. work with things. But 
an actor is almost never going to have sole control over mm-hmm. a project. And I think some of it was um, physical insecurities. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there were things about the way I looked that mm-hmm. were going to be very harshly critiqued in the mm-hmm. acting world. And I was too sensitive about that. Mm-hmm. That's just an honest truth. Um, yeah. And with writing, if someone critiques it, I can either say, oh, okay, I see your point. I should work on that. Or mm. if it's something that I just completely don't agree with, it's like, eh, that doesn't matter. I, I can ignore yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. But I don't have that detachment from my physical form, my yeah. the mortal flesh I currently inhabit. Yeah. Um, and so that would have been harder. It would have been, it would have been emotionally much rougher on me. Mm. And yet we do take hits because with our writing, like the, the more we lean into it, the more of ourselves we reveal as well consciously and unconsciously like how much did you think about that as you were leaning into your writing um i didn't realize when i was writing from unseen fire when i started that book that the main character latona who as i said is the most there's there's so much of me in her and i am not ashamed of that most writers do that to some level Mm. um whether or not they admit it is (laughs) i think the biggest question Mm. I didn't realize at the time that I was writing her that I was writing through some of my own trauma with Mm her. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized it about about two years later, I think, when I was in revisions and we were on submission and I was sort of Mm -hmm. like, you know, just reconfiguring things. I was like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The emotional core of her story there. Oh, I see what I did. Mm And it was it was a lot about a woman who has been discouraged from taking up the space she deserves mm. in the world. Mm. And she has been forced to make herself small. Mm. And I had had a couple of different experiences um, that had done that to me in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. And I was I didn't sort of realize I was writing my way out of that. And so mm. when Latona starts claiming her power and and using it in very public ways and being mm. larger than than her world wants her to be. Mm-hmm. I was sort of reclaiming that space for myself. That was yeah. part of what I was doing. Yeah. Se- semi-consciously, I think, at first. And then I leaned into it and said, oh, okay, this is the emotional core of her story. Yeah. Other people will have had similar experiences. Absolutely. Bring that out more. Don't Don't leave it in the subtext. Bring it out. Make that the emotional heart there and i think it worked yeah i think that's definitely a a common theme and pattern that you know many of us can relate to i mean in school we're taught to make ourselves small and if we're not in our own families then definitely at school we learn that and then in the workplace for sure (laughs) unless you're in charge right (laughs) thanks capitalism yeah Yeah. hey that's our job (laughs) (laughs) So how did this first book come about? You you have a couple of books out with with Daw, which has got to be exciting. And, it and is. How did how did that come about? It was a long road, um, and still going, because mm. I'm working on the third book right now. Mm. The first one I started as a NaNoWriMo project in 2011, <laughs> National mm. Novel Writing Month. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, mm. uh, it's an online challenge to write 50,000 words in the month of November. I've been doing it most years since 2001. I've participated 
mm. in some level. And some years I do it. Some days I fall on my face. Some years I fall on my face. It's fine. Um, I love it as a communal mm-hmm. project. And it tends to give me a kick in the ass when I need it, too. Mm-hmm when I need to focus and and drill down on something. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, I had been working at the American Shakespeare Center for a little over a year. I had finished my master's degree the year before. I had been doing a lot of academic writing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I had gotten away from creative writing. Mm-hmm. And I still thought of myself as someone who wanted to be a novelist, but I hadn't done enough of that work in a couple of years, just because school and my first real adult job had mm-hmm. taken precedence. But I sort of sat down with myself and was like, okay, if you want to do this, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and Nano gave me an excuse to make that time for myself. Um, it's one of the things I think Nano is best at is giving you permission yeah. to set aside the hours and to tell your friends, nope, can't, can't do the thing you want me to do. I need to focus on my writing right now. And I thought about, you know, what do I want to do? What kind of a story do I want to be playing with? Yeah. I wanted to get away from sort of the traditional Western European medieval pastiche that a lot of fantasy certainly then and still in a lot of ways does um, live in. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about what different things do I know a lot about? Rome was on my list and mm-hmm. I happened to be just, I think I was scrolling Tumblr mm-hmm. and came across a painting, The Baths mm-hmm. of Caracalla by Lawrence Alma Tadema. It's a neoclassical thing. Mm-hmm. And there's these three women sitting on a bench together Hmm. and they're clearly they're gossiping about something. And one of them has all the information and she's very excited about it. And the other one's sort of listening to her a little skeptically, like, really, are you sure? Hmm. And the third is like intrigued, but afraid to be intrigued. Mm -hmm. And that was where my main characters came from. That was Hmm. when the Vitellii sisters were born in my head Hmm. and I rolled from there. That was, that was the inception in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, so NaNoWriMo, to do it, I've participated, and to make it work, right, there's some things internally that have to shift, mm-hmm. right? And so what did you have to shift to be able to, to pull that off? As I said, it was a lot of giving myself permission to make the time mm-hmm. and figuring out then also where to get the energy from. Mm-hmm. And I started creating a, a hard buffer between my work day and writing hours in the evening. Mm-hmm. I would sort of, I would come home, I would play Mario Kart usually for a while as mm-hmm. sort of a brain reset, mm-hmm. make dinner, and then I'd write in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still often close to my pattern, at least. It's not always Mario Kart anymore, but um, <laughs> day work, create a hard buffer mm-hmm. to reset the gears because yeah. academic writing and creative writing yeah. are very different beasts. They, yeah. they require different skill sets in different parts of my brain yeah and then give myself that time in the evening yeah. to to hit those marks and and to to be dedicated to the work and to be responsible to myself and i now mm. use a lot of writing trackers and i keep a bullet journal where i check things off and it's it's all about accountability to myself like mm-hmm. you say you do the thing do the thing yeah now i imagine though you mentioned the two big things, time and energy, right? Yeah. They get in everybody's way. Right? And so that hard buffer sounds like you found a way to kind of reset your energy. Right? Yeah, it, it, did, it did help to, to it, like, give myself permission, not just for the writing time, but also give myself permission to have that 
lazy or playful hour in between. Yeah, it's a little joy, a little, yeah. a little non-goal time. Yeah. Yeah. And so that probably lets go of some of the stuff that happened during the day. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I imagine even so, so you make that reset, like in the evening, you may not have a lot of energy, may not feel like you're going to create your best work. Is that something you have to let go of as well? Or do you create your best work after Mario Kart? You know, I don't Some wanna, days. I don't want to lead the witness. It could be like <laughs> the best thing ever after, you know, the blue shell it's, special. You know. It depends on the day. It's yeah. so variable. Um, and that's something I've learned to give myself room for as mm. well. You know, during Nano, you're trying to hit that word goal target every day. But... The rest of the time when I'm when I'm just doing the work to get these books finished, mm. I set goals. I try to average a certain amount per day mm. in a given month. But if I have an off day, I have learned not to beat myself up about it. It's like you're not less of a writer because you chose to sit on the couch and watch Star Trek today instead of <laughs> instead of writing because you were tired and your brain was wrung out and I am learning, and it's still a process, I am learning to recognize the nights when if I nail myself to the computer, it won't matter because I'll just keep clicking between windows and then three hours will pass and I won't have done anything. I just keep looking at stuff. Yeah. And sometimes that's the brain sorting itself out and that's a necessary part of the process. But some days it's like, you know what? You just need to step away and mm -hmm. give yourself that permission too. Mm. And sometimes it's about refilling the creative well. Sometimes I need to go read a book or watch a movie yeah. to refresh the, the well that I draw all of this from. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like an important part. The, the, the trick is just making sure you don't do that every day because then you're not writing, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, there's an extreme between the grinding and the lot of slack. Well, yeah. how did... So obviously in 2011, when you were writing, you didn't have a writing deadline per se. You had a structured experience to, to fit into that. You had accountability and maybe some peer group accountability yeah. as well. But how does things shift? How do things shift for you when, like, for published works, like, have you already finished a book or a draft by the time you get a contract? Or have you ever... Had, like, are you writing under a deadline now? Like, how does that, how does that sort shift of. for you? Yeah. That is something that I think is, is very different from writer to writer based on the publishing house and the editor you're working with. Mm. Um, my current editor, Betsy Wilhelm, is not big on pressuring her writers. Mm. Sometimes I wish she would a little more because I actually do better with a deadline. Mm. I, well, I do better. If you're listening. <laughs> yes. She knows this. We've had this conversation. Okay. Um I, I benefit from a push sometimes. Mm. And so I've learned to set those markers for myself, to push myself in certain ways. Mm. Um, when I was first finishing the book that would become From Unseen Fire the very first time, mm. I did nano. And the book wasn't finished, of course, because it was only 50,000 words. And that's not a full, um, a full novel. Mm. And I wanted to finish it. And I found a convention I was going to go to had an opportunity to pitch to agents. Mm. And that was the following July, I believe. Mm. So I was like, okay, can I do this? Can I finish this book and get it polished up to be ready to pitch to agents at this convention? Mm. And I did. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And I pitched to those agents and realized it was it was a great experience. Um, if you ever have the chance to, if you're someone who wants to to write and you get the chance to pitch to an agent at a conference or a convention like that, mm. take the opportunity. Mm. It gives you such insight into both how they evaluate projects mm. and what they're looking for in that all-important query letter. Yeah. Big things to be aware of. That helped me because it re- I realized both that my book wasn't quite ready yet. We had very nice conversations, and they were like, I'm not sure about this. Mm. Um, and I, I learned a lot about what they were going to look for. So when I was ready, I did a few more months of editing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was ready to query, I had a stronger idea of how to frame that approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things, do you remember, that you had to focus on for a stronger query? It's definitely about getting straight to the action and emotional cores of the story, mm-hmm. not filling out a lot of the world, not doing a lot of setup. Yeah. Exactly as much setup as is needed. And so really the the only really words that I needed were, you know, Roman inspired world. Mm-hmm. That's that's my stage. I need to get to what's interesting about the story and what's mm-hmm. going to drive the energy and the action of the book. Yeah. So the emotional core, the conflict. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 So you're working on your third book in the trilogy right now? Are you on the first draft or revisions or where are you? Where are you <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I am I am someone who writes in a somewhat chaotic manner. Um, this, the draft has never been entirely completed once. Several parts of it have been completed several times. Mm. It at one point has had I think I reached close to 150,000 words, um, which is long. Epic fantasy gets to get away with word counts like that, mm-hmm. um, which is lovely. I love that about this genre. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is currently standing at about 60K mm. because I, I realized I needed to reorganize the second and third acts and condense some plot lines to make them more exciting and also to keep what was going on with some of those different characters in sync with each other. So it wasn't Mm like, Hmm, this set of people has nothing to do for a month of time while something exciting is happening with these other people, but I don't want to just forget about them for a hundred pages. Darn, what do I do? So I've been reshuffling and I, I didn't so much delete tens of thousands of words as put them into escrow. (laughs) They've been shunted to the side. Many of them will come back. Many will come back in a slightly different form. So You're just pulling in what you need. Yeah, so I I would say I'm essentially probably on the essence of a third draft, Mm. but it's never been fully completed. My editor hasn't seen it yet. (laughs) She will soon. That's that's my my current marker for myself. I've got one for getting the draft to her um, this spring. And I imagine you're more able to work on it in those chunks because of the multiple povs are you is that yeah. how you're handling it and structuring it when you're writing are you i do i sort of tend to work through a certain set of characters who are in you know like the same location or focused on the same goal hmm. in a set amount of time and then i'll move to the other set and the other set and then i'll move to the second span of time and do sort of one set of characters at a time hmm. i work in scrivener um mm-hmm. which is a fantastic fantastic program um because I also, I write completely out of sequence. I can't write mm-hmm. in sequential order. I can't, can't start at the beginning and just go through to the end. My brain doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I do so much rearranging to see, like, 
where do I need a, a better action moment? Where do I need to shift these things yeah. around? Scrivener's program makes that so easy to do the way mm-hmm. they have their binder function set up. Mm-hmm. It would be a nightmare trying to do it in Word. And I'm so happy that <laughs> I think it was a little over a decade ago that I found Scrivener. Mm-hmm. It's like, ah, oh, yes, good. Someone made a program for the way mm-hmm. I work. Did you upgrade from two to three when it came out, or did you stay? I can't because I'm on Windows. <laughs> they haven't released version three for Windows yet, oh, no, and I'm terribly uh, distressed about it. They keep mm. saying soon, and I believe them. I trust them. But I'm very excited for when I can make that upgrade. Mm, what are you excited about with it? Dark mode. Ah, yeah, that's I have, a very practical, yeah. real thing, yeah. It so is, for, for especially being able to work at night yeah. and... I have I have slightly sensitive vision and I get headaches and so I've found uh, just last week on Twitter someone gave me a workaround which is brilliant mm-hmm. but it's still not quite the same as just being able to go to a a set dark mode. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I was asking about the books cuz you know, you wrote book 1 in 2011 and it's 2021. It sure is. <laughs> so, well, you you mentioned you're processing the, the idea of playing small and reclaiming your space and with the character originally. What, like, how has the journey changed as far as like how you put yourself into the story and what are you exploring? You know, are you more consciously able to lean into certain themes? You know, how do you keep that train going with the same series ten years later? It's it's gone well because I sort of knew how Latona was going to progress in her magic, mm. and I've been able to to link the emotional heart of the story to that. Mm. As the magic gets bigger, she is owning more of herself, and she is being bolder and being braver. Mm. So in the first book, she's still sort of convincing herself to take that step. Mm. In the second book, she does it, but it's still in a more private way. Mm-hmm. It is still more about her immediate circles. Mm-hmm. Book three, it's becoming really, really public. Mm-hmm. She is making making a spectacle of herself in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is publicly declaring her intentions to use her magic to help her world. And so that's that's had a natural escalation across mm-hmm. the three books. Um, and I think as I've I've grown older and have a better perspective on different kinds of emotional growth in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's sort of easier for me to see how to shape that journey for her. Yeah. You're probably in a better place to authentically yeah. do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is the timeline of the story kind of similar? Is it over a series of years? Um, it? It's, it takes place over about, it will end up being, about two years mm-hmm. um, of st- in story time. Mm-hmm. I think about it in strange ways because I started the book in 2011, but it didn't sell to a publishing house until 2015. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of when I really think about the, the full series starting because that was when I started working with an mm-hmm. editor. My agent, Connor Goldsmith, who is wonderful, is an editorial agent, and so we had done some work before going on sub. But yeah. that's sort of the point where everything that came after mm-hmm. was shaped by those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I had bits and pieces of what will be books two and three before book one came out, but 
it wasn't full, it wasn't cohesive, I wasn't wedded to them because I knew book one might change. And it did. What what changed? Things about the plot line, things about the timeline. I also, um, my main male character, Sempronius Terran, started out much more of a Julius Caesar-esque figure. And I realized in the course of writing that I didn't like him well enough Mm. for him to be the figure he needed to be. Mm. And so he got reshaped over time. Mm. Um, And I forget exactly where it happened in in all those rounds of revisions, but he is now historically more inspired by um, Tiberius Gracchus, who was a reformer and and a, a real man of the people. And he's a better person than he was in the early drafts. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's kind of a that's a real, real element to think about how much we like our characters as we're writing them. You know, I imagine that's one way to lose momentum. You don't have to like every character, certainly, but yeah, or dislike them. But he was to... one I needed to like. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I needed readers to like him, and. That was also part of understanding my genre and what fantasy readers want and expect out of their protagonists. Mm. I was perhaps in the early drafts too heavily influenced by historical fiction, not Mm. fantasy, but just Mm -hmm. regular historical Um, books like Colleen McCullough's Masters of Rome series, the TV show Rome from HBO, Mm. which I love. The characters in there are pretty much all terrible people, Mm. but we love to watch them. Mm. And part of that is genre and part of that is what an actor can do inhabiting the character. I had to shift that slightly for the expectations fantasy readers have. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. And that comes with just, you know, I guess awareness of an evolving market and yeah. those things too. So what do you, have you thought about what you're going to do when this trilogy is done with when it's, yeah. I have, I have a couple of sort of half spawned ideas Things I've worked on when I haven't been working on the Oven Cycle, you know, when I'm waiting for my editor to give me notes or something, Mm. to work on something else. I think my focus, once I send this one off, is going to be returning to a project I started, I was going to say last year, but it wasn't. It was 2019, because Mm. 2020 was just a black hole that devoured everything. Mm. Um, (laughs) Project I started in 2019 that is more inspired by my work with Shakespeare. Mm. Um, it's a, it's a second world fantasy, so it's a different universe. It's not our, our world, our history, Mm. but it's very, very much inspired by early modern London and specifically the playhouses, because I, I know so much about how they operated and and what things were like. Mm. And so I want to give that a magical twist and I want to make theater a generative source of magic Mm. that others then can harness and use and control. But but this story will focus more on the theater and the people who are generating this, this force, this energy Mm. than it will actually on the mages. Um, It'll be a lot of my, so the people generating the magic are not the people using the magic. No, my, my idea is that the magic comes from communal experience that it is generated when people are together Mm. feeling something together. Mm. And that can happen in a lot of ways. Um, It can happen through worship. It can happen through festivals, you know, Mm. but that 
in this world, theater is fairly new. And so this is sort of a new way of generating magic. Mm. And not everyone's going to be happy about that. Mm. It might disrupt the economy and it's going to make my my magical Puritans unhappy. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> is having a, this in a second second world fantasy like it sounds like there's some subtext here you know a little bit that a little bit i is easier to turn upside down in in a second world space it gives me more freedom certainly um the oven cycle is alternate history so it is our world it's our map it's just slightly different because i added magic Mm -hmm. um that still binds me to a certain amount of historical reality Mm mm-hmm which is sometimes fun and sometimes limiting. Mm-hmm. What the second world gives me is I can create a world with the early modern flavor, the architecture and the clothing that I love and, and those aspects, mm-hmm. but I can free myself in other ways. Yeah. I can liberate gender. Mm-hmm. I can decide that there are no gender roles, mm-hmm. that non-binary people are acknowledged and accepted. Mm-hmm. I can open that up mm-hmm. in ways that I couldn't if I just said, I'm going to take literal early modern London yeah. and add magic to it. Not that you certainly couldn't reimagine our own history and our own world like that, but it would be a different kind of transformation as opposed to just building it into the guts of the world itself. Mm-hmm. That this is the way yeah. things are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that takes a lot more time adds to the writing process, I imagine, too, from the ground up. In some ways, yeah. Yeah. Is that does it help have it being part of a podcast called World Building for Masochists to Boy, does it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know when you talk to Marshall that he talked about using ideas generated during the podcast to Mm. inspire and interrogate the writing choices he was making. Mm. And I've definitely been doing that too. I've been on the podcast for, I guess it was about nine months now. Yeah. Um, and I listened to it before then, certainly. And it is, it, it motivates me to make braver choices. Mm. The, the phrase we use on the podcast is choose, don't presume. Mm. Mm-hmm. Don't just recreate the power dynamics that you're used to yeah. or that you think were historical, mm-hmm. whether or not they actually were. Yeah. Make choices, interrogate yeah. The world you're building. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't think I could undo that now. Working on this podcast, um, mm. hearing from so many of our guests who are amazing creators in their own right mm. has put so many new ideas in my brain and mm. has challenged me in the very best ways mm. to make better choices. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot in the last year. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting, but it's also destructive, creatively destructive, right? You know, it's an it's an interrupt, but it's also like fuel. Yeah. Interrupt is a good word for it. Like yeah. everything as basic as what is our idea of a family? Mm-hmm. And I think we in in the American or American adjacent worlds mm-hmm. have one idea of that, mm-hmm. which isn't always accurate, even within our lived experience yeah. and certainly is not um, universal across the whole world. Mm. So what are different things that a family could be? What could that mean? Mm. What different shapes can it have? Mm. You can still have an idea of a family, but interrupt your expectation of what that looks like. Mm. Mm. 
sounds like fertile ground for exploration. It, it is. I'm having a, I'm having a lot of fun. I've, this is one I've I've put on the back burner again as I've been yes. working on Oven Three, but yeah. it's still there. It's percolating in the back. Mm-hmm. And once I finish this draft, I'm excited to get back to this this new project. Yeah, well, that's exciting. Well, for people who want to find you and learn more, how can they do that? Absolutely. My website is CassMorrisWrites.com. Mm-hmm. I am on Twitter and Instagram at CassRMorris. Twitter is probably the best place to find me. I'm very online. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm there a lot. It's my my distraction of choice. Mm. Um, as I said, I also have a Patreon, also CassRMorris, and I am on world building for masochists you can hear me every other week we put out um, a new episode yeah and are you on all the podcast platforms or some of them we are on just about everything i Mm. don't know that we've yet made it to tune in i I submitted us to that a while back but i don't know that they've integrated us but we are certainly on um, spotify apple and directly through our website awesome well it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast This was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.